We're continuing the series called Marked, where we've been looking at the gospel of Mark. And I can't say enough to you guys, seriously, how much of a blessing it has been to just walk through scripture verse by verse like this and start connecting all these dots. I don't know if it's been a blessing for you, but it's been huge, huge for me as we've been studying this uh, together. I want to remind you as we get into the service or the sermon this morning that uh, this is day three in Jerusalem. Now, if you've not been with us, I want to catch you up real quick. We've followed the life of Jesus since his call into ministry. And we follow him as he's like um, healed people and he's commanded the weather, like kind of our weather today. He's commanded the weather. He's, um, he's just done some amazing things to prove who he is. But now he's actually arrived in Jerusalem. And we talked last week about how, you know, Passover celebration in Jerusalem, you remember in the scripture it says he set his face for Jerusalem. And you might think, well, he went there one time to go to the cross. That's true in the week, but he was in and out of Jerusalem that week. And we're going to talk about that more today. So where we're at right now in the story is he's actually come and gone out of Jerusalem three days. This is the third day in Jerusalem. And uh, if you weren't here last week, he did some crazy things as far as like being offended by the way people, God's people were worshiping, honestly. He was pretty upset about it. We're going to kind of unpack that today. As a matter of fact, today what happens is Jesus starts to teach right out of that moment that he had of um, indignation, I would say, in the temple courts. He was offended by what people had turned worship of his father into. And so uh, he called the church out on it. And so we're going to pick it up right there today. This is day three. And today we're going to hear uh, three parables that he teaches right away. Parables are interesting. We're going to talk about that as well. So I'm going to do what we always do. We've been praying this morning. We've prayed before service. We've prayed over our graduates. We're going to pray again here, prayed for our veterans. Um, we're going to pray again here that God would inspire us to understand his word. Like if we come together and we love people and we hang out, but we don't actually encounter God in a real way, we've missed the point of worship. And so we want to just ask uh, him to join you know help us in that effort so pray with me if you would uh, father god we thank you so much for who you are and for the opportunity we have to worship you and not just sunday but every day of our lives we thank you for your word that has been given and handed down and preserved for us that we might study and know you more deeply we thank you for your holy spirit father that you promise that when we believe in jesus we receive your portion in us to compel us toward you in faith we thank you for the faithful work of the Holy Spirit and not leaving us behind in our discipleship. And we thank you, Father, for your love for your people that you would give your son that we might know you. We pray today that we would come to know you more deeply through your word, that you would help us to understand, have eyes to see and ears to hear, even as we set in your beautiful creation all that you've made for us. May we grow in you today. May you be honored amongst your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's kind of funny you think about the idea of the public reading of Scripture was such a huge part of worship, you know, always. Um, just to read the Word of God has effect. That's what I said to the graduates. The reason we want a gr great Bible that you love in your hands is because uh, just reading the Word has effect in our lives. If you've never read the Bible, I would encourage you to do it. Um, we're going to turn to Mark uh, chapter 13. 12 today actually <laughs> 12 today um, so if you don't have a bible grab one on the table in front of you it should be in or around i don't have the page number on here i think it's like 700 and something is where the gospel mark is 737 747 something like that um and we're gonna pick up in verse uh 12 so i want to remind you again that, that he just got done with um uh going to the temple courts and 
you know, saying my house should be a house of prayer and uh, flipping over the tables, driving out the money changers. And then it says this in verse 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. And I just want to stop for a minute and just kind of set some context for today's sermon because it's important that we understand what we're about to understand, hear from Scripture, right? First of all, the, the question you always want to ask, and don't ever be embarrassed to ask it, is when you're reading Scripture, who is Jesus talking about or who are the scriptures talking about? And so in this case, it says he began to talk to, to, to instruct them through parables. Well, who's the them here? So anytime you go into scripture, you find a them, a they, do the work of looking around and don't, you know, assume, but look around in scripture and say, who would the them be that is being addressed? And so we're going to do that today three times to make sure that we know who um, is being spoke of. So we've got to always figure that out. And then the second thing I want to talk about for a minute is this idea of parables. We've said this before at Family Bible Church, but <clears throat> parables are a way to kind of say, you ever seen that this or that? Like there's even an app I think called this or that. Like you compare this to that. You choose this or that. You, you lay this besides that. And that's kind of how parables are. Parables means to cast aside. So I would say like it was almost like com comparing two products, but it's really not because it's more like comparing these difficult to understand ideas to these real, physical, practical things. So Jesus had the way of teaching in parables where he would take something that was kind of, um, you know, hard to get your hands around, and he would say, it's, it's like this, right? He would say, this is an example of it. And so today we're going to hear that. As a matter of fact, today it's even more than that because he's going to couch it in story. He's going to couch it in something that we can all relate to and that his hearers can relate to also, and they're going to understand what he is teaching. All right, so I just want to start with those two things, right? So who they are and what's a parable. We want to like going into this. All right, here we go. Verse 1 then. A man planted a vineyard. Oh, wait, wait. We got to do this real quick. <laughs> I just said we're going to do it, and I didn't do it. He then began to speak to them in parables. And I could say, well, who? Who's them? Who's Jesus talking to? Well, we got to go back up to chapter 11. Uh, verse, I want to say 27. Yeah, 27. Look at it. They arrived again in Jerusalem. That's the disciples and Jesus. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, that's the, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to Jesus. So I want you to know in this first parable, Jesus begins to teach them. He's teaching the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. These would be the people who have religious authority, religious, you know, leadership responsibilities. So he begins to speak to those leaders in this parable. All right. A man planted. Ah, I missed it, guys. Where'd it come from? No, that's perfect. <laughs> a man planted a vineyard, and he put a wall around it. He dug a pit for the wine press, and he built a watchtower. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them, and they struck this man on the head, and they treated him shamefully. Then they sent another, he sent another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them that they beat and others that they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. And he sent him, last of all, saying, they will respect my son. 
But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And so they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. When that owner of the vineyard, what will the, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. Okay, so we're gonna have to do a little bit of work here because I know you've probably heard that before. The parable of the vineyard owner. What's going on? But we just wanna walk through there for a minute and, and look and see what's actually happening. So we're gonna talk. Again, he's talking to the chief priest, teachers of the law, and the elders, the leaders, religious leaders in the community. He tells a story about a man who comes in and does a five things here. I want you to see it. He comes and he plants. He comes and he actually does the work. He plants. He starts something. That's the vineyard owner we find out later, by the way. Here he's only a man. But later on we find he's the owner of the vineyard. But he planted something. That's the first thing. Pretty easy. Second thing he does. He, pulled, he puts a wall around it. He separates it off. He says, this is mine. This is, this, is, this is the vineyard. He's defined the boundaries, if you will. When I first read that, I thought, oh, he's protecting it. He put a wall around it for protection. I always think about walls being for protection. But it's really about establishing authority. It's establishing a res- an area of responsibility, right? It's, it's, uh, sometimes you ever heard churchy words? Um, th- people say, a hedge of protection. Lord, just give them a hedge of protection. And I always think about hedges. Like, hedges don't protect from anything, I don't think, do they really? Hedges? Like, hedges? I don't know, anyway. But there's, there's this idea. It's more, it's, it's, it's more about territory, right? He's established a vineyard. He planted it. He defined it. That's what we've got to get here, right? The third thing, he dug a pit for a wine press. He dug a pit. Why would you dig a pit? I looked in this a little bit, and it seems like it's a way to catch after you harvested your grapes and you've mashed them, you catch the drippings, you catch everything into like a vat, sometimes in the ground. And so I thought, well, that's interesting. But this is what I started to see, right? Maybe you see it already, right? He expects a harvest. You see, he didn't plant the vineyard and define the boundaries so that nothing would come of it. He expects a harvest to come. He's so confident there'll be a harvest that he digs the pit himself for harvest time. There will be a harvest. He's confident in that. The fourth thing then is he builds a watchtower. Now this is the idea of protection. There's a very high tower on this vineyard where you can see a long way off. And they're seeing off is for two reasons. One is to protect the vineyard. So it's his vineyard. He'll be able to defend it. High ground is always good ground. If you're military, you know that. Then the second thing is that you can also see people coming, friend or foe. So you can know ahead of time, hey, Open the gates. Our friends are coming. Or bar the gates. Their enemies are coming. So that's protection. That's definition. And that's a a provision for the vineyard. All those things are in place before he leaves. But then look at this. It says, he then rented this vineyard to some farmers or some soil workers, some plow hands. And he went away to another place or on a journey or to a foreign land. So I was thinking, like, this is kind of funny. So now we have a vineyard that's been established. We have the plants in the ground. There's an expectation of harvest. There's protection. There's definition. And then here in the middle of this, he rents the place out and leaves. Like, what? He rents it out. 
In our culture, I think about renting. This is kind of funny if you just go with me for a minute. In our culture, ownership is responsibility, but renting sometimes is irresponsibility. Do you know what I mean? Like, if some of you actually own rental properties, you know people who rent your properties don't always respect your property, do they? <laughs> there you go. Matter of fact, the old joke about a rental car is, you know, drive it however you want because it's a rental, isn't it? <laughs> you just abuse those rental cars and they go on sale for like super cheap and you're like, I don't want to buy that thing because I drove rental cars. I know how they're treated. Because see, we don't in our culture have a respect for um, the things we rent. But this is more than that. These are hired hands to care for the field. They aren't, they aren't renters like they own the place. Uh, they're called to work the fields that have been established. They're called to harvest the grapes that have been planted. And they're called to care for it. And I think we've really lost that in our culture. This idea that we have a responsibility to an owner. Um, I'll say again, I think we, very function, we function on the idea that we have an, we're, can be irresponsible when we aren't the owner. We feel like we can be irresponsible. All right, so he goes away. He rents the vineyard out, but it's still all good, right? Nothing, nothing's wrong yet. Verse three, or verse, uh, verse two. At the harvest time, or the scripture says, at the appointed time, at the perfect time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. So he just sent some workers back, say, hey, how's the vineyard doing? What's going on there? I just want a little bit of the harvest of my labor that I've invested. I want some return on my investment, Right? I've not only established the ground, but I've hired the hands to work the field. I've paid for it. In verse 3, this is where the story gets crazy. But they seized this servant, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. His trip was in vain. It was futile. I just want to think about that for a minute. So if you really walk the story out, you have this place that should be um, the glory of the owner, Right? I mean, it should be like, he's done all the things he needs to do to make this a great vineyard. And then when he sends his servant to come and to claim some of what should be his, the servant is sent away empty-handed. The whole thing was for nothing. I want you to think about being a servant like that. You, you, you're sent by the boss to go back, the owner, to check on this property, and you get there, and they beat you and send you away and say, we don't respect you or your owner. We don't care. So the, 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 the servant is sent away. Interestingly enough, by the way, that servant probably reported back, right? He probably went back and said, they beat me and sent me away with nothing. Verse 4, he sent another servant to them. They struck this one on the head and they treated him with shame, disrespect. And he sent another and this one they killed. They just took his life. They want anything to do with this owner, anything to do with what he's got going on. This is gonna, we're going to unpack this about, because Jesus is in Jerusalem, right? When he's saying these things. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, by the way. Some they beat, others they killed. It's like this ridiculous story. The more he sends, the more they abuse. The more he shows up, the more they reject. The more he asks, the more they you know, deny. They, they want nothing to do with this owner at all. And then here we go. Verse 6. He had one son, one left to send. He only had one left to send. No one else could be sent. And so he sent a son whom he loved, or the beloved son. He sent him last, saying, they will respect my son. And this is, I want to unpack this just for a minute. This is the idea that these people are so full of themselves. 
that if I send my son, they will finally have some humility. The word respect there is kind of hard to get a hold of, but it's just turning inward a little bit, reflecting on the truth of what's going on, realizing the situation that you're in, and acknowledging the truth of it all. Surely they'll do that when I send my son. Surely they will. The vineyard owner believes. But the tenants began to conspire. This one's the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. This is the one that the lot belongs to. This is the one that's going to get the vineyard. And if we kill him, we can own the vineyard, is their theory. Which seems crazy, but it's what they do. It's how they respond. So the word says in verse 8, they took the son and they killed the son and they cast him out of the vineyard. And then Jesus asked this question. And this is interesting, by the way. He doesn't even wait for a response here. If you read this, it's happened so fast. But he says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? And I gotta think in that moment, these teachers of the law, these um, uh, uh, elders and leaders of the religious probably have some ideas they'd like to share. Or they probably have something they want to say. What would the owner do? With, if this is how you're treating his servants, this is how you're treating his son, what would the owner of the vineyard do? What do you expect from him? But it's to be a rhetorical question because Jesus answers it immediately. The owner will come, and the word says he will kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. But I want to point out something here. When Jesus says the owner's going to come back and kill the, those servants that are unfaithful, he don't mean kill like they killed the servants that he sent. He means destroy. That owner is going to obliterate. They're going to just cease to be. They're going to, they're going to be ultimately and completely destroyed. By who? By the owner. The one that started all this. Then Jesus quotes here from Psalm 118. I told you last week, maybe you want to read Psalm 118. Here is Jesus going to quote from Psalm 118. He says this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. The one, the, the, the builders should have been like, you're finally here. They threw it out. You think about how a stone worker would actually, building a temple, would reject a stone. You know, do you think he's going to get it up there and they're going to put it in place, see if it fits, and go, ah, and then throw it? They're going to go, get it out of here. It doesn't fit at all. It doesn't belong in this building. And it's going to be cast out. You see the connection there? <laughs> the sun comes. He doesn't belong here. They kill him. They killed the servants too, right? But they kill the sun and they throw him out. You got no part of this vineyard. You don't fit. And Jesus goes to the psalm and he says, man, don't you know? Wait, let's go just one more time, folks. I know I'm beating it here, but listen to me. Who is he talking to? The religious people. The teachers of the law, the chief priests, the elders, the people should know. And you know what he says? Haven't you read this scripture? This is on the heels of him saying, my house should be a house of prayer. Stop making my worship cheap. Stop selling doves and exchanging money. <laughs> Haven't you read the Bible? That's what he says to him. Well, yeah, we, we're, we're religious leaders. We read the Bible. Of course they've read the Bible, right? Do you not know what is written there? Have you not read it? 
And he quotes the psalmist. Check it out. Verse 12, they get it. Now, see, I did some, we did some work to unpack it, but they get this. They get it. Because look what it says in verse 12. Then they looked for a way to arrest Jesus because they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. Remember what they asked him last week? Who gives you the authority to do this stuff? Who, who are you, Jesus of Nazareth? Who tells you coming in Jerusalem start flipping things over in the temple and preaching and you know, spewing scripture at people? Who gives you that authority? He tells a story about a vineyard owner who is given authority, right? He tells a story about a vineyard owner who's given authority to renters and now has sent a son. And they get it. You know what's funny? In the Gospel of Mark, way back in chapter 3, they began to conspire to kill Jesus. The immediate response to Jesus' presence is, let's kill him. I, mean, I don't know if they had that much awareness that Jesus has here in this parable. You're trying to steal the vineyard. <laughs> You're trying to take what isn't yours. You're trying to claim something that you didn't start. What's all the analogy here? Jesus God started this vineyard. God planted these seeds. God expects a harvest. This isn't yours to own. It belongs to the Lord. And he said last week, is this of men or of God? What, you tell me that and I'll tell you who I do these things by. They began to look for a way to arrest Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Ver, chapter 3, they're going to kill him. Now they're going to try to arrest him because they knew that they had spoken against him. What are they trying to do? They're trying to distance themselves from the responsibility even of killing Jesus. But they were afraid of the crowd. And so they left him and they went away. That's the first parable. We have two more. You guys ready? Check it out. They leave and they send people. Look, later they sent. Who's the they? They is the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders. They sent some of who? The Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. So they, get, they, they went, they got mad, and they left, and then they said, hey, we're going to send you guys to go talk to this Jesus in the temple. I want you to go down there and see what he's doing. Have a conversation with him. Catch him in his words, right? The Pharisees, real quick, are holy people. We always pick on Pharisees, but they believe the word of God is true, and they're trying to live it out all the time, and they're supposedly open to correction supposedly open to correction but they really believe in holiness of God and the requirement of men to be holy remember apostle Paul said I was a Pharisee among Pharisees right but there's another group here mentioned the Herodians you might remember Herod was the ruler right the tetrarch or whatever and so they had this political affiliation at least with Herod but I read something interesting some people actually believe that Herod was the messiah some people in that sect believed that he was the promised one he was going to rule and so they were Herodians through and through, and they were a subsect. Um, they always hung out with these, the Pharisees, it seems. So they were religious people who believed in some political power that was currently in place was the will of God or was going to be the Messiah. So the Pharisees and Herodians were sent then by the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders to try to catch Jesus in his words. And they came to him and they said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. <laughs> You are not swayed by men because you pay no attention to who men are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Let me just ask something real quick. Do you think that was honest already? Like, I always wonder, do you think, Je I'm going to say, yeah, he did, but you, know, you ever had that common sense nose? You're about to get a sales job from somebody. 
They walk up, they start saying really nice things. Oh, you look nice today. Hey, what a beautiful, how you, you look like you're on top of the world. And you go, oh boy, here it comes. <laughs> There's a sales pitch. Like that common sense knows you can hear it. Do you think that they meant that? We know that you're a teacher who doesn't respect any person. You teach with authority. You think they really believed it? These high holy men? We know. They just build them up, build them up, build them up. You teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. There's no lies in the things that you teach. And they ask this question. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? What? A weird question. I want to remind you who's asking again. The religious folks who would maybe say, hey, we owe, we owe to faith to God alone. The idea of taxes here is tribute. We owe tribute to God alone. And then the second group of people is Herodians who will go, you better say Herod. You better say Caesar, man. You better say the state. So he's got this kind of people group in front of him that you would say on one side, he might say, no, because we belong to God. And then they're going to be like, that's right. And the Herodians will be like, oh, wait a minute. And then you say, yeah, we paid taxes to Caesar. And then the Herodians go, yeah. And the Pharisees are like, wait a minute. See what they're doing? Do you pay taxes or not? Interesting stuff. Check it out. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Hypocrisy means pretending. Jesus knew they were pretending. You know Jesus knows we're pretending, by the way. Woo, come on. Like, in our lives, when we are faking it, Jesus knows we're faking it. He ain't impressed with faking it. Do you know that that's true? Oh, you ever feel that with God? You're like, you're feeling something, and you're like, yeah, and he's like, you're pretending. He's like, yeah, I'm pretending. You're right. Jesus knew their hypocrisy, and he said, why are you trying to trap me? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. I just have a question. Do you think he needed to see a denarius? <laughs> Some of you guys are like, nope. <laughs> you think he knew what a denarius looked like? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they did. They brought him a denarius, a coin, and then he asked him, like, look at the speed of it again. It doesn't say he examined it, he contemplated it. He, he, said, he said, bring me a coin. They brought him a coin. He said, now you look at it. Whose portrait's on it? Whose inscription is written above his head? Whose picture is there? The word is icon. Whose image is that? Who does that look like? They answer the question, Caesar's. And Jesus says, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed. You've heard this before, right? I want to, anybody like paying taxes? Anybody love it? Can't wait to pay your taxes? Anybody's excited to write that check? Yeah, USA, USA. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Nobody's chanting that. You're like grumbling. You know, whatever. I want you to do something. Take out a coin. I want everybody to do this. Take out a coin or take out a dollar. Either one. Everybody can do it. If you got a little kid next to you, go ahead and grab one and show the little kid. Show him. Say, look at this. I got a penny. Let's see what else I got. Got a fiver. Oh, they're the same. Look at that. That's all I got. Got a whole bunch of Lincoln. See that? <laughs> this is crazy, right? You go, to, you go to look at this, you say, Whose picture's on it? Who is it? Somebody tell me, who are you looking at? George Washington? 
Jackson, Lincoln, yeah. Anybody looking at Benjamin Franklin? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Listen, who, now this is what's funny, right? The question is, do we owe tribute back? This comes on the heels of the question about the vineyard, by the way. Who owns the vineyard? Jesus says, whose picture is it? Give it to Caesar. That's Lincoln. Give it to Lincoln, I guess. Give it to Washington. Give all the Benjamins. No, I'm just going to play. I was going to make a bad joke. <laughs> I was going to say to me or to the church, but no, don't do that. Whose picture is on it? Give it to them. That's one side of the answer. Herodians are like, yeah. And give God what is God's. This is what's crazy about this passage of scripture. You and I are image bearers of the God who made us. You and I carry the image of God with us, in us. We ought to rightly, when we look at one another, we ought to rightly see glimpses of the divinity of our maker. In his image, he created them. In his image, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's what this word says, doesn't it? Imagio Dei is what that's called, the image of God. And Jesus said, you worry about taxes? Give Caesar's taxes and give God what is God's. Belong. You belong to God, right? There's so much you can unpack on this idea. He is the vine. We are the branches. We're in the vineyard. We're growing. Image bearers. You return to God what is God. The Pharisees got to be like, yeah. No. You know what it says? They were amazed at this teaching. Wow. You mean there's something, listen, you mean there's something more offensive than not paying your taxes? Is there something, you know, the joke is there's only two things in life that are sure, death and taxes. You think there's something that's more offensive than not paying your taxes to the government that you function under? Maybe. Not returning glory to the image, the imager that let us bear his image. You think the government gets offended when you don't pay your share? The vineyard owner comes back and says, what are you doing? My people, my people, my vineyard, what are you doing? See, return to God's what is God's. I hope you see that, man. Shut them right up. Yeah. Bigger questions to ask. These um, Pharisees thought they had right standing in their holiness. Last bit here, starting in verse 18. Then the Sadducees, this is the last one, third parable. Then the Sadducees came, who say there's no resurrection. In case you want to know what the Sadducees stood for, that's what they believed. There's no resurrection. <laughs> they were like YOLO, right? Literally, they were the YOLO people. That's it. You're done. It's over. One trip around the globe. We're finished. And they came to Jesus with a question. So these are also religious people. They're believing, but they're believing something different. 
And they say this, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow but also died leaving no child. And it was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left this woman any children. Last of all, the woman also died. At the resurrection, whose wife will this woman be? Or, yeah, since the seven were all married to her in this life. You think they have this kind of ironclad thing. She's married to somebody. Whose wife is she going to be in this supposed resurrection? First of all, I just got to say, when I read this, I go, poor woman. <laughs> I'm not being mean, but seven husbands and no kids, it's, that's a lot of suffering, man. That's a long life. Need some grace for her. Like, that's tragic. This is one of those things, I think, by the way, that people who want to get kind of theoretical with God and not deal practically with him. See, they didn't even, they said, who's, what they ask him, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Do you remember what defines the Sadducees? They don't believe there's a resurrection. In other words, they were coming to God with a question that they didn't even care what the answer was for because they didn't believe in it. They didn't believe in it. They were asking a question that was completely irrelevant to their convictions. I, I think, I just want to point that out because I think sometimes we do that with God, right? Yeah, well, God, what if this? God, what if that? God, what if, and we're playing all these games with God. And it's nothing we even believe, we don't really want to know God. We want to trap and we want to trick and we want to go, ah, ah, I know more than you know, creator of all things. They ask the question, whose wife will this woman be? I want to say one more thing about this, by the way. There was importance in the culture about whose wife she would be because representation was about who you were married to or who you gave birth to. If you were a woman in the culture, you had to have some male representation in the culture to have any standing at all. Or you were forgotten, worthless, thrown out, cast out, unimportant. And you have to understand that to get the answer Jesus is going to lay down here. Because they believe that if there's a resurrection, it's just like this life. And there's going to have to be some kind of, you know, representation, some kind of a thing. Someone vouching for someone there. Which of these seven fine men are going to vouch for this woman in eternity? Look at what Jesus says. Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? He teaches now. We're going to come back to that, but he teaches. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage because they will be like angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Sadducees read that. They're like, yeah, we've read that. God is not the God of the dead, but God of the living. And then there's this little tag in IV. You are badly mistaken. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of that Twitter thing. Bad. <laughs> you know, wrong. <laughs> you don't get it. You Sadducees have missed the boat on this whole thing about what God's doing. Man, can we just for a second talk about how we've missed the boat on what God's teaching? This is tenderly, gently, but truth. Jesus blows up our own culture here in this answer, doesn't he? You think, 
I found the woman of my dreams. I found the man of my dreams. There's no one higher. Nothing could be better than this person that I'm married to. I know Chris thinks that all the time. <laughs> no, I think it all the time. And then you read this passage from Jesus, and he's like, don't you know in the resurrection, it's not going to be like it is here. It's going to be like the angels in heaven. It's going to be like one unity with God. It's going to be like worshiping him all the time. It's going to be like all the things you've tasted. You know that relationship that you love so much here? You know that husband that you love so much? That wife that you love so much? You know the feeling you get on a Harley Davidson or on a roller coaster? You know that exuberation you get? You're just like, oh, I want more of this. That. Whew. That's what resurrection's like. You take any human experience that you say, I want more of that. And you magnify that thousandfold best resurrection. That's eternity. That's presence of God. That's the garden. That's the city. That's the beauty. That's worship. We get it wrong. <laughs> you know what happens in this life is that Satan twists up all the things that God says are good to make them bad for us and we'll do anything to get them. But you know this free life of Christ is offered and the resurrection is a gift to us that we get to experience him forever. Sadducees say, who's going to be married to? Man, you're going to be with God forever. No, I, I'm not being mean because I know there's passages of scripture and there's places we're going to be in a community of faith and the city and the kings together on the throne. There's all this great stuff in scripture about the truth of the full-bodied nature of resurrection. But don't, get, don't miss it. It's better. It's better than this. It's better than your best feeling, your best emotion, your best moment. Jesus says this to the Sadducees. You said, I said to you guys earlier today, man, if you can get into the word of God, just read the word of God. You say, Bill, I'm not a scholar. I don't, just read it. Play it, listen to it, study it, stick it on your mirror, put it somewhere in your life, paint it on your walls. Just begin to listen to the word of God because Jesus says this, you were in error because A, you don't know scripture. You, you, think, you think that your marriage is the best thing you could ever have in your whole entire existence? It's only because you don't know Scripture if you believe that's true. You think that you have to get everything you get in this life while you can because it's YOLO, you don't experience now, you never experience. You don't know Scripture if you think that's true. Whatever trapping you've put before God, if you, don't, if you believe it's more important, you don't know Scripture, Jesus says. That's why you're in error. That's why you're mistaken, because you don't know what the scriptures say. And the second thing is like it, and you don't know the power of God. <laughs> you don't know the power of God in your life. Now listen, I get all excited talking about it, guys. You know, I get all excited. I love the word of God. I preach to pray. I love to study the word of God on my own. I just love it, you know. But I feel that, man. Don't know the power of God. I get glimpses and just fragments, more of that. Jesus came into Jerusalem and he's challenging everything that they believe. He's challenging everything that we believe about what's important in life. If you think it's hard for you, it's hard for them. But this is the truth. It's far too easy to become religious and dishonest. Right? It's far too easy to fake it till you make it, to give a cheap answer to a real question. 
to not be willing to be honest with one another here now as we prepare for eternity with Christ. It's far too easy to say we got this instead of saying, Jesus, I need help. We live in that space with those Pharisees, those religious leaders, those teachers of the law, those elders. It's too easy to become religious without caring at all about what God has given us to tend, to care for, to grow into. He owns the field. He is the resurrection. He is the image bearer, the image grantor. And we ought to be listening to him. I hope, um, if you've not, that you would just find a way to get in the word of God. And I hope with me, if you feel that, you're like, yeah, you want more of that power of God. I don't mean like, see, that's what's weird in church, like, oh, I, I got for my use. No, the power of God over me, not for, like, I don't get to direct it. You want more, though, more than faking it, more than an on-the-shelf Christianity that looks good to others, but it doesn't do anything for us, really. We want resurrection life. We want new life. I'm gonna pray today for us. I hope that you believe, I don't know where you are today, but I hope that you believe that you are in, in bow, endowed with the image of God and that he is crazy about you because he made you. He knit you together. He knows how many hairs from your head. And I hope that no matter what the devil is saying, no matter what you're saying yourself, about, yeah, but this, yeah, but that, that you would stand right now with me before our, the creator that made us and just with the birds singing and everything and just say, yes, I belong to you. You know me. You know my sin. You know my brokenness, but I am yours. See, that, is an offering that the Lord can use for worship. Pray with me if you would. Father God, I thank you so much for your, your presence. I thank you so much for your word and for the revelation it is to us in our lives. I thank you so much, even though it's painful to acknowledge that we're not so different from the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the Sadducees, the elders and the chief priests, that we have this sinful heart that we would rather steal the inheritance than work in your field and to be blessed to be part of your kingdom i pray father god that today that whatever religious trappings that we may have come in here with we just let them fall away for a minute we would just be honest with you and say ah i'm i can't do it alone father for everyone here we long to return to you whether we know that or not i pray father god that that your spirit would compel us toward belief compel us toward faith and compel us toward your kingdom i pray there would not be manipulation of man father i pray that in any way i or family bible or those around us are manipulating us into to do things that are self-serving that that would stop it would be cast out as unworthy of your presence but that your work would remain that the work that you are doing in your people would stand for eternity i pray a prayer father of faith in you because only you can make the vineyard awesome only you can make harvest come may you be glorified we love you so much we thank you for this chance we have to draw near to you i pray that if this is a glancing blow we would meet you face to face i pray that if this is a moment in our lives we'd be drawn ever closer to you until the day that we can't wait so can't wait to be with you forever may you be glorified we worship you together and we thank you in jesus name amen